most incredible, fantastic worship, warring praise night, which only God knows what's going to happen, but it'll be, it'll, it'll be powerful. Okay, so now let's turn to the notes, and on page six of your notes, I just talked a little bit about Sir Robert's temple. And I said just before the break that he was uh, perhaps the clearest and uh, uh, Old Testament allegorical type of well, what I'm going to call a church building apostle. He knew how to build the temple, but he didn't know how to do anything about the city. Hello? So he built a great place of worship and great meetings went on there, but the city remained in ruins. And I want us to start to stretch our mind, to stop thinking about, if you think about apostles at all, which most people don't, you need to start thinking about them. We've got to, and we're going to spend a whole, possibly quite a bit of tomorrow, looking at the apostolic ministry. So I really want you to understand it. I want you to understand all the different, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on government so that we can get that part absolutely clear. Okay? But I wanted to introduce you to the idea that apostles aren't just in the church. And I believe the greatest, one of the greatest Old Testament allegories of the other kind of apostle, which we're going to talk about, is the kind of apostle who um, is the apostle of the marketplace. Here we get a tremendous illustration here in the Old Testament, because if it was 516 BC that the temple was finished, and, and they began to enjoy a great worship and meetings in the temple, and as I've said already, they've done a lot to make their homes much more wonderful places to live. So let's assume that the work of the Spirit over the last decade or so has been to do a lot to repair the damage in the homes. Has been done a lot to build and understand what a real living church should be like and how it should be functioning. But in between is an unreached city. That's where we've been. I hope you can see what I'm saying. People go to work, but they, 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 it's easy, you see, to, to have all your friends in the church and to go away on holidays together and, and you know, even do sport together. You get your kids in a good Christian school or you homeschool them, and, and you live in a sort of a kingdom bubble where you're largely insulated from the, 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 the darkness and the demonicness of the world. You just go in there for, you know, and earn your living for 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, whatever it is, but you don't like being there, and the sooner you can get out of that and get back home, oh, at least at home, we love the Lord and we can have praise cakes and we can have a nice time at home and have our nice Christian friends, and then we can go to the meetings and get blessed and enriched by all the stuff that's taught there, but in between is this ruined city. It's breaking God's heart. And, and I believe this God, it's, it's been on my heart for, for years, but it's beginning to touch the church at long last. Now, what staggered me was when I started to do the, the maths of this, and see, Nehemiah came to the city of Jerusalem in the year 445 BC, which is 71 years later. So for 71 years, and if you like, if you think of the Pentecostal movement at the beginning of the 20th century, think of the charismatic movement and the various other movements in America particularly, over, but it's touched very many parts of the world, then all that time, the secular world's got worse and worse, darker and darker, and more and more demonic. During that time, Islam, for example, has made tremendous inroads in capturing large parts of the world. Would you agree with that? 
Then you look at all the other isms and all the other invasions of false cults and false religions and, 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 and the, the secular, secularizing and the, and the taking, particularly in America, taking God's name out of everything and anything. And all that's been stolen from us. It's gone on for decades and decades and decades. And you think, well, how is it that we, we can live in such insularity that the church seems to be totally irrelevant to the rest of the world and to the rest of society? God says, I'm going to change that. He's going to change that by bringing forth a new kind of church. And one of the things he's going to do is to bring forth, and he's beginning to bring forth a new kind of apostle. He's perfectly typed here in the Old Testament in Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah was not a priest. He was a governor. He was appointed by, by the Persian Median Empire to govern the city of Jerusalem. And, and, but he got there because of his passion for the city. He, was, he had a good job in Washington. Let's say, let's take the American picture. He's got a great job in Washington, D.C., and a nice house paid for by the government and a great fat salary. But he comes from a place where the, the city's ruined and broken, and his heart is breaking for the city. That's the picture. He, he was in Sushan, the capital of the Persian Median Empire. And I, if you're from Europe, as some of you are, I tell you, you've got to get your heart breaking, and you've got to take control of Brussels, which is like the power center that controls so much of Europe. And so wherever we come from in America, what goes on in Washington very much affects what we can do in any part of our nation. Austin, Texas is the capital of, of Texas, and what goes on there affects all the smallest little towns in Texas. We've got to start becoming conscious and concerned for our capitals because out from there will flow a great influence which affects what we may or may not do in terms of, of liberty to worship God, to preach the gospel and evangelize men and women. And we've, we've allowed that separation of church and state to become a physical reality long before it became a legal requirement. Hello, can you hear me? I hope you can hear me. But Nehemiah was in this good government job, but he got reports of what was happening to his own hometown, Jerusalem, where his forefathers had lived and their tombs were there, and his heart began to cry out. He began to weep and weep and weep for the city of Jerusalem. And I believe that's the first, the first thing that happens. And, and if you are not weeping for where you live, I want you to let God give you his heart for where you live. I can honestly say to you that when my wife and I, Eileen, we came to San Antonio, Texas, it wasn't long before God broke our heart for the city. And it was Eileen before me. I mean, it took me a while to get there, but I'm there. But when I lived in London, England for all those years, I tell you, London, England just broke my heart. When I lived in Bombay, it broke my heart. Wherever I live, the city where I live, it becomes my heartbreak. And, and, and it was, that's the first thing, because it was Nehemiah's heartbreak that made him the man of prayer. You go through the book of Nehemiah, and you'll find almost every other verse, it says, Nehemiah prayed to, prayed to the Lord. He was a man of tremendous prayer. And absolutely on his own. As he prayed these prayers, God was beginning to move things at the highest political level, and of course, move things in the spirit realm, which was going to change the whole situation. And one day, the king... Artaxerxes saw this depressed man and said, why is your face so sad? He said, well, it's because of my home city. And he says, what do you want to do? He says, well, if you send me back to my home city, and this is a st statement of faith. As, as in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, 
I will rebuild it. So, so this is the steps which I want you to see. It begins with a weeping heartbreak, which leads to a prayer life, and the prayer life leads to faith. And then faith that God can put into you. Then believe you begin to believe that God can do something about it. And the next step is to believe that you can be the instrument that God's going to use to do something about it. So there's four steps. Have you got those four steps? Heartbreak for the city, leading to prayer for the city, leading to faith for the city, and then finally, you believe that little as you are, nobody as you are, the nothing person that you are, you can become a means that God can use to transform your city. I'm going to use Irene as an illustration because she's, uh, as you can tell, she doesn't speak Texan. And, and she said, well, I'm a woman, I'm not a Texan, what can I do for the city of San Antonio? My heart's breaking. I mean, Eileen, I remember a period about six or seven years ago when Eileen spent oh, three and a half weeks just weeping over the city of San Antonio. It was a divine visitation. I thought she was going insane. I really did. She just wept and ached for this city. And out of that, God gave birth to the city reaches ministry that she now leads that is significantly touching the city of San Antonio. Now, She's a nobody, with all love and respect. I'm a nobody. Nehemiah's a nobody. But nobodies are useful to God when they are carrying the burden of God and when he can pick them up and use them as his instrument. Amen? So, so I'm just telling you that if you will go through these steps, you can become the answer to your city. He'll meet you, and usually the numbers in the beginning are very, very small. In fact, if you read the history of revivals, the numbers which are the means of bringing revival are, are, are tiny. And if you don't get numbers at that stage, they come later when God breaks forth. And then Nehemiah comes back, and then the next thing he is, he gives the, the city, gives our tax agencies a plan, a strategy for the city. That's, is that number five or number six? Number five. Gives them a plan, a strategy of how, of, from God, of how this city is going to be changed. And then number six, he gives them a time frame. How long will you be away? He gives them a time frame. So, so you see, it's one thing to say, well, I believe that one day God's going to do something about my city. But God says, no, let's get down to a time frame. This time, next year, Sarah, you're going to have a son. Now she's locked into a time frame. It's one thing to believe God that maybe one day something will, but say, by this time next year, I'm believing my city is going to be different. That's, a different. that's a different kind of faith. Martha said, oh yes, I believe that Lazarus will rise one day at the resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Do you believe it now? Oh yes, I believe. Okay, roll away the stone. Then it leads to action. That's the next thing, is action. So Nehemiah comes back to the city of Jerusalem and he does a survey of the city. He begins to, begins to see God's strategy, how it's going to fit into the actual circumstances of the city. Then the next step with Nehemiah is that he then is able to, to energize 
envision and mobilize the leaders of the city. If you go to Numbers chapter 3, you'll find, I counted it once, there are 68 different people that he calls together to be the leadership team to transform the city. Now this is, this is what we're going to call it, I don't particularly like the term, a marketplace apostle, because it's not just the business world, it's every facet of society. It's the judiciary, it's the politicians, and you go through that list. They, they started with the sheep. You see, often you have to start with the pastors. But for goodness sake, don't spend your time forever with the pastors. Hello. And the next gate's the fish gate, which of course is, is, um, is transforming the way you evangelize. You go through it, it's an incredible, I mean, I could spend a whole conference on this alone. Just the Nehemiah picture for city transformation. But you'll find that there are 68 different people, many of them are politicians, many of them are businessmen, some are priests, they're all kinds of trades and professions, and there's the goldsmiths and the guys with all the money, and they're all being brought together to work together on their portion of the wall. In other words, they're building offices outside the house. In other words, a, a guy who's in politics, he will build in the political world. If you're in education, you're going to affect the, the education. If you're in media, you affect your media. This is, your, this is the bit of a wall outside your house. If we're all working together under an apostolic directionship, it all fits together to make one complete wall. Amen? Now that, I believe, is what God is speaking and beginning to call for. And we need to recognize this. That as well as the apostolic builder that builds the church, we need the apostolic builder that can build cities. They need to be received, they need to be recognized, they need to be given their role of leadership. And once they emerge and begin to lead, by the anointing of God, by the strategy of God, with the faith of God, and with the anointing, with the leadership powers of God upon them, it'll all happen. Now, one more thing I want to say here is that 13 years before Nehemiah came to the city of Jerusalem, another man had come whose name was Ezra. He was a prophetic teacher, a great intercessor. You read his life, and an incredible life. And he was in the city of, of Jerusalem, he came in 13 years before, he came in in BC 458, which is 13 years before Nehemiah came. Now he was there for 13 years, praying and, 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 and teaching the word, and, and his heart was breaking. You read the book of Ezra and feel the heart of this man. And yet he couldn't make anything happen in the city, because he didn't have the apostolic anointing. And there could be people in your city, and you could be one of them. It's crying out for your city and having intercession meetings and teaching principles of how city taking can take place, and yet nothing's actually happening. You need to cry out for that apostolic ministry to occur. And when he comes, make room for him. If he's got the anointing that you don't have and you love your city, you'll get out of his way in order that he may lead, and you'll just become part of his team. Or oh, I was in this city long before he was. Who cares? Do you love the city or do you love yourself? Is it going to be your church that's the most important church or is it the city that's breaking your heart? Can you get into rank, whatever position that is, and say, look, I'm here for the kingdom, I'm not here for me. It hasn't got to be through me. I, 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 I would love to be part of the team, but I'm just going to recognize where the anointing for apostolic city-taking is, is, and I'm going to get in behind that guy and I'm going to give him my very best. If we will begin to do these things, we're going to see transformation. The other thing that staggers you as you read through, you read this in Nehemiah chapter 6, it says that in 51 days, 
the wall was complete. Now, I'm not going to get into it now, but, but what Nehemiah was doing physically was an allegory of what Zechariah saw spiritually when he saw the heavenly Jerusalem. What Zechariah saw in Zechariah chapter 2, Nehemiah began to physically uh, do to be a physical allegory of what God was really after. I'm not going to get into it. It's going to be at that conference on the city church in a few months' time because I can't do it all in this conference. This isn't time for it. All the elements are there. And the first thing is that you have to build a wall. Now, the wall is not stone. It's fire. It's, it's people who, who know how to pray and put a wall of protection around the city. Then you've got to put the gates in position. And it's interesting how it was the sheep gate, it was the fish gate. You see the order in which the gates were built. There's tremendous allegorical purpose in all this. All there for us to just get up and run with it once we allow God to show us why he put that in Scripture all those years ago. Whatever city you represent, whatever nation you come from, there's a pattern there which is going to work for you. Amen? Okay. Let's move on. Let's go back now to, to Zerubbabel's temple for a little while. This is part of the way down page six. Zerubbabel's temple continued to be used until BC 168. But I want you to see and understand that God wasn't really that interested in the building. He was interested in what it allegorically represented. Zerubbabel's temple was, was relatively... Um, small and unimpressive compared with the Solomon's temple which had been destroyed. It was more what it said allegorically than what it was physically that was of concern to God. But it went on you know, continuing all those years. And finally, in BC 168, a, a hostile Syrian king, whose name I can never remember, somebody Epiphanes, I've got it written down, here it is, Antioch Epiphanes. He was a Jew-hating Syrian king and he came and damaged and desecrated the temple. He actually slaughtered pigs on the high altar and did all kinds of horrible things. And as a result, the temple was contaminated and no one used it. And finally, after the revolt of the Maccabees in B165, the temple was put back into, into, into practice. And this same deteriorating, damaged temple, originally built by Zerubbabel, was restored and greatly expanded and lavishly embellished by Herod the Great to gain favor with the Jews. So that's, that's the temple that Herod built. He added to it, enormously increased its size, greatly increased its grandeur. The work began in BC 20 and was not finished until about AD 60. And this was the temple that Jesus entered several times during his boyhood and ministry, and it was finally destroyed by God through Titus, a Roman general in AD 70, when they totally rejected him. And finally, God rejected the temple. As I go through Scripture, and let, perhaps we just pause for a moment in Acts chapter 7, if you would just come with me to Acts chapter 7 just for a moment and see the great, incredible sermon by Stephen just before he was martyred. Just be, his sermon was hot enough for him to get killed. So it's good probably not to repeat what he said. <laughs> Listen to what he says. Verse 47, But Solomon built him a house, 
However, and he's talking about Solomon's temple, however, the Most High God does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. In other words, he was telling us again here that it was a mistake. It wasn't God's heart or God's will. God allowed it to happen to show you what happens when you build fancy, glorious buildings, how they detract from true worship. David's tabernacle is, goes into ruins, and, and Solomon's temple becomes grand and perverse and corrupted, and there's no true worship left in the whole nation. God detest these kind of buildings. Several times Jesus went into the building in the days of, 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 of his earthly life, the temple built by Herod for totally the wrong reasons. It wasn't to glorify God. Nothing going on in the temple was glorifying God. God just disliked the whole thing. And when he tried to bring it back to some semblance of worship and, and some semblance of being house of the Lord, he, he was fiercely rejected and finally crucified. Amen? So God said, that's enough of buildings. Can you hear what I'm saying? But if you think that God's going to be in rebuilding the temple, you're totally misled by an error which is popularly held in many parts of the church of Jesus Christ at this time. If you read the scripture, you, can, you cannot come to any other conclusion. Now, there may be some misled Christians joined with some enthusiastic Jews who try to do it, but it's the last thing that God will warn. How far he will let them go, I'm, no, I'm not really quite sure. And I'm quite sure of this, he would never, ever, at least I'm pretty sure of this, that he would never allow animal sacrifice to be restored again, because that would be the biggest insult to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm only saying that personally, I haven't got any scripture to prove it, but if it goes on, it's not God. Just as the burning of Solomon's temple was not really God. That doesn't mean he necessarily stops it. Can you hear what I'm saying? But I don't want to waste my life and my money on something that God does not want. If that shocks you, then go and read your scriptures. Let, let, let the thing really soak into your heart and spirit. This is, what, this, is what, this is what Stephen is saying, anointed by the Holy Spirit in one of the most powerful denunciations of, of empty religious Judaism and the temple which was the heart and center of the whole thing. However, the Most High God does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet said. He's now quoting Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. You may be circumcised physically, but you're certainly not circumcised of heart. Or ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, and you do as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute or kill when, they, when he foretold the coming of the just one? And because he's lining things up for the same thing to happen to him exactly. They're going to do to him what they did to every other kind of person who spoke in this way. But God's got no interest in these things. No heart for it. Finally, it was rejected. Was, it was destroyed. But the, the reason I'm, I'm pointing this is because it's got great allegorical significance. What Haggai saw and spoke of in the spirit, what Zechariah saw, they weren't looking at that temple at all. They were looking at the, at the spiritual reality in the heavens which it represented. Which is all brought forth so powerfully in the prophecies and the visions of Zechariah and the whole heart and center of the thing is a city. Now, Abraham, we're told in Hebrews again and again, Abraham saw a city whose builder and maker was God. It was a city that had foundations. 
And that city wasn't on earth, it was in the heavenlies. And that city had the power to become a just like physical Jerusalem had been in the days of David, it was the powerhouse that gave power to rule over a nation. This has the power to rule over in the heavens. Abraham saw that his inheritance wasn't just the Holy Land, his inheritance was the whole earth. Amen? That's what God showed him. Before he'd finished his walk with God from Ur of the Chaldeans, he wasn't interested anymore in just a little piece of land called the Holy Land because God had given him a heart for the whole city, for the whole world. And he dwelt in the Holy Land as a stranger and a sojourner. He said, this is just a 0.001% of my inheritance. And I and my descendants, we're going to inherit the whole earth. Every square inch of ground and every human soul is God's and we're going to get them back from the devil by the power of the kingdom. He saw a heavenly land. You read it in Hebrews 11. It was a heavenly land, and the way to take the heavenly land, it wasn't on earth at all. It was, it was the whole spirit realm of the demonic powers which are illegally occupying these heavenly strongholds and preventing God's will being done on earth because they're influencing earth from the vantage point of those heavenly, uh, heavenly strongholds. And that's what we have to take. If we build a spiritual city in the heavenly realm, then we can destroy the power of darkness in its heavenly uh, strongholds, and they no longer have any, any power. Is this making any sense to you? Now that's where it's all going. That's where we have to go. So the church has got to have ability in the spirit to enter the spirit realm, rage war in the spirit, take authority in the spirit, build the city of Jerusalem in the spirit, in the spirit realm, and it's already established there. And then by the power of that heavenly city, we bring the influence of that city upon earth, and the city on earth changes because the heavenly city is already built. I was earthly Jerusalem began to change when heavenly Jerusalem was built over it. You can build heavenly Jerusalem anywhere. But over any city, you can obey these principles of city taking, city building. Just take the prophecies of Zechariah, take the prophecies of, of concerning and, and the allegories of how the Nehemiah built the city. And, and this is all absolutely the blueprint plan of how God wants to take your city. If we will fulfill all the conditions, we're going to see the same results. Amen. Now let me move on. Let's move on. I want to move on to the next page. This is going to be what we will do before we finish. Okay. Page seven. I want to just spend the rest of this session probably, we won't get much further, to look at the word church. It's a word that's used by everybody and misused by most. So we're going to go right back to the root and see what is the church. Because if we don't know what the church is, we will not know the church that Jesus wants to build. Jesus wants to build a church that, that is, that, and, and again, in his teaching, he sees the city and talks about the city. As you know, with this church, I'm going to build 
the city in New Jerusalem. It doesn't appear at the marriage of the, of the, of the bride. It, it, it's already there. Is this, is this news to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Come to two scriptures. I'll leave it for now. We'll come back to that later. Let, let's go on where we are. I'm sorry. Let's stick on this thing of the church. Page seven. It's not a new name invented by Christians. It was used in the Bible and other Greek writings in a secular way to describe an assembly of people are coming together of a group of people, a crowd gathered together for some purpose. The literal translation is the called out ones or the called together ones. Come, for example, to Acts chapter 19. The word comes three times there. Verse 32. This is the word ecclesia, the Greek word for church, ecclesia. Some therefore cried out one thing and some another for the assembly, the ecclesia was confused and most of them did not know why he had come together. It's just, it's just a gathering of people. Come to verse 39 of the same chapter. And if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, in the lawful ecclesia. Verse 41. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly, he dismissed the ecclesia, he dismissed the church. If you come back to Acts chapter 7 for a moment, uh, Stephen is quoting scripture when he tells us that when Moses was wandering in the wilderness, in verse 38, he said, this is he who was in the congregation, the ecclesia, the church in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. So whole community of God's people, about at that time three million people, was called the ecclesia in the wilderness, the church in the wilderness. So that gives you some idea of how the word's used. It, it just speaks of a community of people gathered together for some reason and for some purpose. The emphasis is on the people. It's not to do with buildings or organizations. Hello? Now let's just run through this in the New Testament, all right? I've already covered all that. Let me go through this again. Um, it's God's family made up of all nations. It's the new Israel. You'll find several times that this new community of God's people of many different nationalities is called the new Israel. It's God's household of which we have all now become members. It's one body of many members joined to each other and each joined individually to Jesus, the head. Each member has a different unique function, and we all have need of one another. And there's three great passages of Scripture we could spend the whole of today and tomorrow on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 27, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 13, Romans 12. They all talk about this multi-membered body and how we all need and work together. And basically, there's two connections. There's the connection of the joint, which is what some movements say emphasize on the joint. You know, we're all connected and we're jointed together. But also, every, see, my physical body is a picture of the church. It has one head. Every, every member of my body is joined to the next member by means of a, of, a, of a joint, by a connection. But also, there's a thread of nerve that runs right the way through to my brain, so it's in touch with the brain as well. When I do that, it's my brain telling it what to do, and it has to cooperate with the joint for the right things to happen in the right way. 
So we've got this double connection to the head and to the next member. Now, some movements have emphasized connecting to the next joint and have disconnected. You don't need to go to Jesus. You go to your authority. Your pastor, your priest will tell you what to believe. Your pastor priest will tell you what to do. You don't need to know God. You just need to know who's over you in the Lord. Now, that's got good in it, but it's also got danger in it if you overemphasize it. We end up with a lot of people connected to people who are telling them what to do, but they have no connection to the head. The discipleship movement is a good example recently of how that went horribly wrong. It so emphasized joint relationship that it cut you off from knowing or having any contact with the head. Others say, oh, you know, I'm not joined to anybody. I don't follow any man. I just follow Christ. Well, you're like, imagine my hand cut off at the wrist, but just a thread of nerve remaining. What a precarious way to live. Amen? Any moment, snip off, and that hand is now severed from the body and is useless. You don't just rely on your head connection, you've got to rely on your joint connection. So to be disconnected from the body is horribly wrong and say, oh, well, I just, I, just, I just walk with Jesus and he and I just have fellowship and he tells me what to do and I don't listen to any man. Now, that's absolutely erroneous in a different way. You need healthy connections to the joints because we all need each other and even the head says, I have need of you. Even Jesus says, I cannot do what I want to do without a body that will do what I say. That's what's so frustrating for him. He can't work in this world without human agencies to be his instruments to do what he wants to do. You got the picture? Now that's the body. It's very obvious from these passages of scripture, which I just referred to, that we're dealing not with a... They're all written in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. They're written in the context of a large city church and they're not speaking about a local congregation. Because here again, what you're going to see as I go on, there's a great place for congregational life. There's a great need for a community of people that really love each other, know each other, and minister to each other in their lives. But as a group of two or three hundred people, you may not have certain gifts that you need. Like, for example, when we came back to Britain after being years in India and took over our local church, which grew significantly, there was no one in our churches that had a a gift of evangelism. And I wasn't happy to have a church that didn't know how to evangelize. We planted out five churches and they became congregations of several hundred, but they stayed together as one, one city church under, under the same final authority, but each one move, moving as a, as, a, as a body with having great life together. But when we needed an evangelist, we could draw on the evangelists of the whole body and not just the local congregation. A lot of our training, I think, were done for all the churches together because the gift wasn't in our community, it was in that community. We came together, as well we had local prayer meetings, we came together as one church to pray in a, a particular centre over things which affected the nation. And we had, every Sunday night, we had a warring praise night, which we all came to from all our different congregations. And boy, did we have fantastic meetings. And the things that happened in the spirit realm were, were tremendous. Hear what I'm saying? So there's a great place for congregational life, but often congregations are incomplete. They live in insularity. They are, they are missing essential parts of the body. They're only part of a body. They're not a whole body. Does that, can you understand what I'm saying? 
It's a holy temple. It's described as being made up of peoples of all nations. We've already done this, built as living stones. On one foundation of apostles and prophets, we're going to come on to all this tomorrow. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Let's move on to page eight. It's gone to the use of the word church in scripture. The word ecclesia, usually translated church, comes over 110 times in the New Testament. Now listen, it comes in the singular 73 times and in the plural 37 times. And it's used in the following ways. Now notice these numbers. 16 times it is used in the singular for the whole universal body of Christ in heaven and on earth. 16 times it talked about the whole body that's in heaven, that's on earth. There's one great universal church, singular, the church. It's used four times in the singular for a company of believers meeting in someone's house. Romans 16, I've given the references there, and you can't get that many people into a house. Would you agree with that? It's used in the singular. We wrote several times to Aquila and Priscilla and to the church that's in their house. We don't know how big the church was, but it couldn't have been very large. It's used in that sense of, of, a, of a small community of believers. We would call it today a house church. It's used 33 times in the singular for the whole company of believers in a particular city. In fact, the idea of many separate isolated churches in the same city is foreign to Scripture and is not mentioned even once in Scripture. He writes to the church in Corinth. Now, on our database in San Antonio, I think we have approaching 2,000 different churches, and we haven't got, a, by, by any means, an infinite list. That tells you what's gone horribly wrong or something. Paul could write to the church in Laodicea and to the church in Colossae and tell them to exchange letters because they had fellowship with one another. Two totally distinct cities, but still in contact, still working together and, in, and having a fellowship, a partnership together to take their a nation for God. Can you see how much more joined it was in those days? But when it comes to a particular city, and we know that the church in Corinth, for example, was around 20,000 people. That's historically what the church grew quite quickly to be. Yet it's one church in the city of Corinth. It's one church in Ephesus. It's one church in Jerusalem. It's one church in Antioch. It's one church in every city that's named throughout the whole of the New Testament. Next point. The whole church coming together in one place was not unknown, but it was clearly not the usual weekly practice, and it caused special problems. You read about these particularly in 1 Corinthians 14. When you all come together, how is it that you all have a... And there was total chaos because they're not used to being such a large community. And they, 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 there was an overflow of gift and, and wanting, people wanting to participate that led to utter confusion. As I've gone on with this, and, I've, I've, and as I've watched what's happened and seen it, I mean, I, I see three levels in which the church can meet. I'm going to give them these names. The first name, I'm going to call it at celebration level, when in a particular city or, or area, the whole church comes together for celebration. Now, a very good example of all this is in the church of Dr. David Yonggi Cho in Seoul, South Korea. I've, we've been there several times, and the church is probably somewhere, I'm not quite sure the latest figures, but somewhere between around about 800,000 is in the one church in the city of Seoul. 
Okay? The whole church runs on the power and basis of, of, of effective evangelizing home groups. Everybody has to be part of a home group. But you also find there are many, many, many meetings held during the week which are at congregational level. They are, you know, for various reasons, they'll come together either in a locality or they may say, let's get all the doctors, all the medical people together, let's have a special you know, meeting to discuss how we're going to reach the medical world. So, so sometimes these communities have got specific purpose. Sometimes they say, look, let's all those in the northeast corner, let's meet together for a congregational meeting with several hundred people, maybe a thousand or two. And then once in a while, we'll all get together. When he has a house group leaders meeting for the whole church, he has to hire a stadium because there's 60 to 70,000 of them. One church. So, but you find, you find this, what we found in our region in England, and we did the same thing, like for example, in the church in, in, in uh, Bombay for many, many years, we, had, we still have somewhere between, I don't know the exact figure now, but at that time it was hundreds and hundreds. Now it's somewhere between three and 5,000 churches in the city of Bombay have sprung up out of this movement. But we don't own one building in the whole city. But what we do is we just hire halls, but most of the church life goes on because the culture of that city is that everybody lives in apartments and the flat roof of the apartment block is where everybody meets to have their family celebrations, their parties, their birthday parties, and they agree that we can use it for a church meeting. And then we were praying and praying and praying about the difficulty of having accommodation. And then one very, very rich, 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 rich businessman who owned 87 of the, of the private um, schools all over India. Now, I forget how many, but there were several dozen of them in Bombay. He got powerfully converted and overnight made all his schools available for us to use free of charge every weekend. Suddenly, this, I mean, uh, what can you tell you a lot more about this than I, I do? But I've been there, I've been part of it, so that's how God works. So you have celebration, and you have congregation, and then you have house group. At those three levels, each has its power, each has its purpose, but each without the other lacks something. So I'm not in favor of only home groups, I'm not in favor only of congregations, I'm not in favor of, well, now let's just all get together as one big city church once in a while, and the rest of the time, let's not have any Christian meetings. I don't think any of that is correct. But if all of them are working together, they all contribute something significant to the, to the reaching of the city. The pattern, come down to Number five on page eight, the practice of community of God's people coming together on a regular basis, probably weekly, on the first day of the week, Sunday, was encouraged and was practiced by the early church. I've given you a series of references. So and they found to meet on the first day of the week was, was when they liked to meet. I never quite worked out why, but probably that I won't go into that today. It was on the day of, of his resurrection. They said, let's meet on the first day of the week and break bread. And they tended to do that in congregation. The pattern of those meetings is not clear, but in Jerusalem and Ephesus, they initially met publicly in large numbers, e.g. in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, reading them gathering in the temple. They also met from house to house in smaller groups. It says that in verse 46. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, I met with you publicly, and I also met with you house to house. There was all kinds of different kinds of meetings, but it was all one church, and it was one apostolic father that they all recognized and received. The same leadership moved amongst them all. It was still one church. 
Then persecution broke out under Roman authorities and the large open meetings became impossible. So for many, many years, the church just met in small groups. If you know anything about what's happened in China, the great um, work of a man called Watchman Nee. How many know about Watchman Nee? The little flock movement. Well, that powerful movement didn't decrease during the, all those terrible days of communism. It went on growing and flourishing because there was nothing you could do. There was no central headquarters that they could deal with. And I was praying about it. I said, I said Lord, which is right? Because I was brought up in a particular uh, sector of the church. I mean, we actually printed and published Watchman Nee's books long before they ever became available in America. He was one of the men that we loved and knew. And the, and the people that worked with him were part of our work in India for a number of years. After they got thrown out of China, they worked with us together in India. So I know all this stuff firsthand. The guy that translated Watchman Nee's material Angus Kinnear was the guy that, that sent us out to India, preached at our valedictory service when we went to India. And, and so we know these people intimately. And we, we were able to talk about what it was like and what was happening, as well as, of course, publish and then read the books. Then Eileen was first of all asked, and then I followed very short note, shortly afterwards, to go to Longi Cho, and she wrote a tremendous book about that church way back in the 80s, and she had six weeks of intense exposure to every detail of that church in a way that most people don't see that church. I've been there a number of times, and I've got right into how the whole thing ticks. And so I said, God, which is the right way? He said, it all depends upon your environment. Both are right. But if you're under persecution, you can't have large public meetings but they can't stop the church meeting at the house church level, and they can't stop them being in touch with you, and they can't stop all these Ephesian four ministers still having contact with them. There's nothing you can do to kill the church if we live it and, and, and put it together God's way. And as you know, the church under persecution in China has flourished and grown to some figure around about the 100 million mark, probably more than that. No one knows exactly. but it's one church. Come to number six. Ecclesia was only used in the plural. This is page nine, by the way. This here, number, point number six. Ecclesia was only used in the plural for many churches or communities of believers that sprang up across a whole nation or a region. It's the only way it's used in the plural. Never used in the plural within the, the confines of a particular city or a particularly known community. It was used in the plural, number, number seven, for the many communities of Christians spreading out over the Jewish and Gentile world and visited by Paul and the other apostles. All the churches, it says several times, of, of Judea, of Galatia, of Galilee, of Syria, Macedonia, Asia, they're all mentioned in that way. They mention it as all the churches for a region, but that's a, it's a large region. You might say all the churches of Texas, but you should not say all the churches in San Antonio. It's not biblical. Unfortunately, it's a practical reality, which I believe God wants to change. It doesn't mean we've all got together in the same building and build one super building. It means that we've got to have relationships. We've got to say we're the one body in the city, and we've got to recognize that God's given headship and leadership to apostles over the whole of that city church. And when we start getting that right, we're going to see incredible things happen in our city. That's how it was then. It seems, number, verse number eight, it was also used 
in the plural, for communities of Jewish and Gentile believers experiencing suffering and showing practical care and concern for one another. You read all these scriptures and how the Jews were suffering, the Gentiles gathered up offerings and brought them to them, personally brought them to them. There was a, there was a caring for one another. Although they were the churches, they still were not insularly cut off from one another. The same apostles moved amongst them. The same leaders were known in both networks of churches, if you like, and they, were, they had relationship and, and, and were received in either one of them, and they could organize one to meet the needs of the other. Does that make sense to you? Just read on the next one. Verse number nine. It seemed that all the Gentiles and the Jewish churches in several nations and many cities were clearly in contact and in good communication with each other, and many of the same apostles moved amongst them all. You look at where, for example, Paul went, where Apollos went, where Timothy went, where Titus went. They were moving amongst a whole lot of churches and we were being received by all of them. Paul could call for the elders of the church at Ephesus, which was a city of almost 300,000 people. And they were there. You try and get the elders of San Antonio together. We've never accomplished it yet. You send out emails, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of addresses. You send out notices. You announce it on the radio. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's move on. The church is neither an institution nor an organization. There is no suggestion anywhere in Scripture or in the writings of the early church fathers, and I'm going at least in the first three centuries, of the growing number of churches being controlled or directed by some central headquarters officials running an organization to which members of churches were joined and to which they submitted in an impersonal way. The church, for example, and the apostolic center that Jerusalem was never controlled Antioch. It served Antioch, it helped to give birth to Antioch, but once Antioch came to any measure of, of, of maturity, it became its own uh, self-governing apostolic center, which had relationships with Jerusalem and interaction with Jerusalem, but one wasn't ruling over the other. But there was fellowship and there was interaction of their ministers. Can you hear what I'm saying? But they didn't plant the first church of Jerusalem in Antioch. They didn't send their, their funds back to headquarters or a percentage of their funds back to headquarters because there wasn't any headquarters. When we've moved around many nations in the world and planted churches, none of the churches that we've helped establish under God, none of them is called outpouring ministries. They've got their own names, they've got their own local autonomy, they've got their own apostolic ministry, and they've grown to maturity, and while I can still visit them as a dad, they don't need me anymore in a, in a kind of overseeing way because they've got their own wisdom, they've got their own wealth, they've got their own maturity in God. I can still go and be a blessing, still teach them some things which perhaps they don't quite know in the way that... They, but, but I'm not over it. I, I'm, how many churches do you cover? None. I'm not, I haven't got a church that I'm over. I'm a, I'm a father to many, but I'm not, you understand what I'm saying? That I have relationships, and I encourage them to, to come to maturity. My passion is, and we'll go on to this later when I start to deal with missions. I feel the way we deal with missions is altogether wrong in many respects. 
and it restricts and confines the growth of these things. The church is not institution, it's not organization. Come down to paragraph two. Institutions and organizations, like many of our present denominational structures, were unknown for several centuries until the church began to apostatize. Underline that in red three parts. They developed into rigid bishoprics, with presiding bishops becoming ambitious for power. You read the development of the mess of the church between about AD 300 to about AD 100, it's appalling. They had military armies, they fought with each other for power. At one time there were three popes all competing to be the top pope. They were prepared to kill each other to gain the political advantage. Now this is the history of Europe, it's absolutely appalling. Finally, uh, the force of military might, one emerged to become the Bishop of Rome, who finally became the Pope of what is now called the Roman Catholic Church. Another group split off, became separate Orthodox churches, like the Greek Orthodox. You try and evangelize in Greek, and the Greek Orthodox Church will gladly kill you. I'm not exaggerating at all. So let's not think that any of that is of God. I assume you think it's not of God that Christians should kill each other. Amen? Then when the Calvinists came, they were just as bad when they treated the Anabaptists by drowning them because they believed in believer's baptism and not baptism, you know, the covenant grace theology of the, of the uh, Calvinists. So because you didn't believe that and were baptized as a believer, you were likely to be drowned by an ardent Calvinist. Many Anabaptists were, were put to death by the Calvinists because they believed in believers' baptism. So we could go on and on and on and on with this stuff. Amen? So we need to repent. Say, God, far be it from us to be like that. On the other hand, page 10, there was no independent isolationism. And then it's also clear that the churches were not independent. And I said, but lived and moved in close relationship with each other under the care of an apostolic father. Under the care of apostolic fathers. They had real connections to each other and to one of the several regional centers and real relationships, real relationships with the apostles who were based there. We look at this more carefully when we come to the government of the church. As I mentioned already, when Paul finishes the letter to Colossae, he says, share this letter with the church in Laodicea. And, says, and you read the one that I wrote. Laodicea. In other words, you guys are in relationship to each other and you're in relationship to me. There was this, this fellowship, there was this, this communication, there was this contact. So neither on the one hand were they under some authoritarian system, but neither on the other hand were they living in some kind of splendid isolationism. Me and my church. That was unheard of, unthinkable. There wasn't a church that wasn't in relationship with many other churches, and there wasn't apostolic ministries, and there wasn't apostolic leaders that weren't in contact, serving each other, working with each other, cooperating each other to build the one great glorious church of Jesus Christ. Amen? I haven't seen any sign for time. I don't know where I am. I think we're just finished now for today. Okay, the time is gone. All right, let's stand and let's pray.
Can you feel the cry of my heart? And is it the cry of your heart? Yes? God, we want your church to be the church it's supposed to be. Lord, in these days as we look at what it is and, and see where it's not what it's supposed to be, would you give us the courage, give us the ability, the understanding that that life, the power, might flow into this present-day church that we represent. That as a result, we're not going to be little isolated Christian clubs that are not touching our cities. We're going to be powerful, praying, warring, evangelizing communities that are going to, it's going to reap a great harvest. It's going to throw down the principalities and powers and destroy the demonic forces which so fiercely oppose the church at this time. Not only in our city, but in our nation, then in the nations of the world. We just recognize that finally we are one church. We're one body. The head of it all is the one glorious risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to say with all our heart, Lord, don't please have to knock on the door to be let in. Come in. Take over. Be who you are. Show us your specific plan. Will you please build your church? Build your church. Build your church. Your way. The way you want it to be. And Lord, where we've got ourselves confused or or misled or, or, or out of some kind of tradition, we're doing the wrong thing in the wrong way or even the right thing in the wrong way. Well, give us the revelation from your spirit to know, Lord, that this is wrong and we've got to change it. Lord, will you speak to those who have authority and have, who have leadership roles to see this and want to see this transformation? May it become a great movement, Lord. Even now, although we're just a hundred or so people meeting here, Lord, will you speak to thousands and thousands and thousands of leaders in the city of San Antonio, in the United States of America, in the European nations, in Africa, and in India, Lord, and may there come a great movement in city after city that brings forth the fullness of the church that Jesus built. And then you've promised, you said, that when I build my church, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Nothing can stop that church. Nothing can stop the power of that church. Nothing can resist the authority of that church. No demonic power can in any way hand, hamper or hinder the forceful advance of your kingdom. And Lord, give us understanding. Lord, just anoint me and help me not to wander around, but to be, to be specific to be clear and leave clear words and clear impressions in people's hearts so we really come to understanding about these things lord help us all to, to help us all as a community as a group of people together to have revelation in these days that, that literally opens our eyes so we can really see with clarity and we can teach with clarity the people that we represent in jesus mighty name we pray amen 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 God bless you.